just <laughs> listening to all these stories that you have and all these unexpected connections between all these different food cultures and cuisines. Mm. It just, ah, it really warms my heart. <laughs> yeah, good. Ah. I'm glad. What could have possibly triggered such a reaction in me? Now, that is the power of the dish, or rather, the category of dishes that we'll be exploring on this episode. They're simply called kue. This is Take a Bao, the show exploring anything and everything around Asian food. I'm Lo Ijun. This episode all began with one curious question. What is a kue? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term, a quick search on the web will tell you that kue, spelled K-U-I-H, and used as both a singular and a plural, kue are bite-sized snacks or desserts commonly found in Southeast Asia. Now, you might think, why then am I, a Malaysian, a Southeast Asian, asking about kue? Surely, having lived in the region nearly all my life, I must have had plenty of kue, since it's commonly found here, after all. And yes, while I have had plenty of kue, more than I can count, actually, kue is so much more than just that internet definition. It's a category of food that defies categories. It goes beyond small snacks and sweets and desserts. Kue can be cakes, pastries, biscuits, cookies, dumplings, even dim sum. Kue can be baked, fried, steamed, seared off in a wok, charcoal grilled, and deep fried. And the ingredients in kue include your typical Southeast Asian dessert pantry list of coconuts, palm sugar, glutinous rice, kaya, and pandan. But also, confusingly, a lot of kue uses savory ingredients like dried shrimp, fried shallots, and even sambal. Confused yet? See, this is what I mean. Living here in Southeast Asia, having had kue all my life, there's still a confounding kaleidoscope of dishes that I honestly still know little about. So this week, we're deep diving into the world of kue, and we'll explore how, despite coming from Southeast Asia, kue has ties and connections with the whole world. And I know a lot has been going on in the world in the past few weeks. So in a way, it's also my hope that listening to this episode can serve as a rescue remedy in the form of food, and it can help us all feel a little more connected as humans. I should also probably tell you that this episode will run a little differently. I'm trying out a different style of storytelling, and this episode is centered around one conversation I had with a master kue maker from Singapore. His name is Christopher Tan, and I just had the most wonderful time chatting with him about kue. And what was initially supposed to be a 20-minute interview on a video call ended up being a two-hour-long conversation, jam-packed with great anecdotes and stories and just oozing with love and affection for Kue. So for most of this episode, we'll be weaving in and out of my conversation with Christopher, and I'll be providing some commentary along the way, and also somewhere in the middle, we'll be taking an excursion to actually make some Kue. 
But all this began with that fateful call with Christopher. Hello. Hello. Hey, June. Hey, Christopher. Can I call you Chris, actually, or, or would you rather Christopher? Uh, I, I prefer Christopher. Okay, yeah, okay. Professionally, I'm known as Christopher. Great, yeah. great. Okay. So Christopher is a food writer, and his reputation often precedes him. Tons of people and eaters I've spoken to have mentioned his name and hails his latest cookbook, The Way of Gui, as a watershed publication on this heritage food. And really, Christopher's reach extends even far beyond that. I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, well, I'm a food writer. I've been around the block a, a, a fair bit. I've written for international publications. I, I uh, do speaking uh, and demos and presenting now and then. I, I teach cooking nearly every week, or at least I did before the whole COVID thing happened. And uh, yeah, I, I just generally like to eat. <laughs> Don't let that humble introduction fool you. Christopher has written over a dozen cookbooks and... I think he's sort of a national treasure of Singapore with his wealth of food knowledge. And to begin to tap into his food mind, I started off with the trickiest of questions. I know this is like a very, very big question, but what, <laughs> <laughs> what, what does kueh mean to you? Kueh, okay, so, so for, for the listeners who may not uh, know what kueh is, okay, so the, the word kueh in uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore is generally used to refer to um, small items, which could be sweet, could be savory. They're not, strictly speaking, desserts in the Western sense. We don't, we don't eat them at the end of a meal, but we, we do eat them on special occasions. Uh, mostly we have them outside the context of a meal, so they are, they are their own uh, occasion. And many ways are associated with particular times of the year, with particular festivals, with particular um, occasions like birthdays and, and weddings. And if you live in Malaysia or Singapore or Indonesia, you cannot help but grow up around kueh. It's a part of the fabric of life. Kueh is a part of the fabric of life. Isn't that just so poetic? Christopher is filled with great quotes like this about kue, and we're only just getting started. In fact, we are going to bookmark each of the three acts of this episode with a poetic quote from Christopher. So act one, an introduction to kue, the fabric of life. So as we heard, Kueh is a key part of many Southeast Asian cuisines, that nearly every culture in the region has something like kueh. Most of Asia, and certainly maritime Southeast Asia, which covers all the you know, archipelagos and, and, and sea trading routes in our region, everyone there has something like kueh. It's just that kueh is the word used in Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia to describe it. You know, in Thailand, it will be kanom. Uh, in mm. Vietnam, it might be ban. So we all have something like kueh. And to get a sense of just how wide-ranging kueh can be, even the term, the spelling of kueh, is often disputed. But where does the word come from? The word kueh itself, uh, linguistic scholars tell us, comes from uh, a Fujian dialect in South China. And it tells you how, for how many centuries they've actually been uh, trading and sailing and migrating to Southeast Asia that the word kueh has become adopted 
by Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Melayu as uh, a loan word to mean, you know, these little cakes and snacks. Right. Yeah, I think that's like a, the pronunciation itself. As you say, it comes from a Fujian dialect, right? But yeah. when you Romanize it, what is the right way though? Because I know in your book, you spell oh. it like K-U-E-H. But in yeah. Malaysia, Indonesia, we, we spell it K-U-I-H. And a lot of people spell it many different ways. So sometimes there's a W in there somewhere. Um, yes. So in, in Malay, it's K-U-I-H because that's standardized Bahasa Melayu. Then uh-huh. in Indonesia, Bahasa Indonesia, it's K-U-E. Okay. I use the spelling K-U-E-H because for most of the last century, uh, both our Malay and English newspapers in Singapore use that spelling before mm. Bahasa Melayu was, was standardized. But over history, if you look at really old, like, you know, vintage Kwaku books, it's spelled so many different ways. K-O-A-Y, K-W-E-E, K-U-E-Y. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to the point where it becomes becomes uh, a bit bewildering. But, uh, you know, that that's part of the fun of, of researching Kwe, I guess. And this variation in its spelling just hints at how old Kwe's actually are that so many different spellings have spawned out of the original Fujian word. Kwe's are so very old. They actually predate most uh, of written history. They, they predate the practice of writing recipes. They predate a lot of modern maps, even. Um, and on the one hand, the fact that there are so many similarities between Kwe's in maritime Southeast Asia is that some of it is parallel evolution. You know, if you have coconuts, if you have palm sugar, if you have rice if you have glutinous rice, if you eat all these things in your cuisine, you're going to have things and recipes which make use of all of them. So two kueis which look similar may have evolved on entirely parallel tracks. Um, On the other hand, we know that there has been so much migration between South India, South China, Southeast Asia over the past several centuries. And then you have the colonial influence during the age of exploration as well with the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British coming over. Um, that there has been so much cultural mixing that it's completely not surprising that, you know, influences should be shared and, and the same kind of ways pop up uh, in many places. So now do you begin to see just how complex Gui are? Okay, to give you an example of this, let's zoom into one particular Gui, pineapple tarts. These are little bite-sized butter cookies that are filled with pineapple jam. Sounds simple enough, right? But even this simple pastry item has a ton of influences. Pineapples are from Latin America. They were brought to Southeast Asia by the Portuguese and the Spanish. The butter pastry in pineapple tarts is definitely Dutch. Okay? Pineapple jam, pranakans and Eurasians, we put spices in our pineapple jam. Cloves, cinnamon, uh, star anise. Star anise is from China. Cloves, cinnamon from Indonesia. Mm. You know? All these influences in one way. See, it's crazy, right? Just think about how many cultures contributed to the making of this one tiny kue, the size of your thumb. Christopher also had another example. And ready yourselves, because this one gets even crazier. It's kue bahulu. To take another example, kue, kue bolu or baulu, to use the, the more traditional spelling. These, these are little pan-baked sponge cakes, which, which are made by Pranakans and Malays as well. And it's essentially a, a fatless sponge mixture. So it's just eggs beaten up with sugar and wheat flour and then baked in uh, a mold, um, usually of different shapes 
or sometimes all the same shape. So you have these these uh, pans with little hollows in them. And traditionally, they would have been put over charcoal and then covered with a lid and then more charcoal on top of the lid so that they're baked with bottom and top heat. And uh, I was researching this as I was uh, putting this in the book. And I came across a Dutch cake called, uh, and I will probably butcher this pronunciation, but they're called Evenwiltjes, which literally means equal-sized cakes. And the Dutch pan for making these little uh, baked pancakes is almost identical to a okay, Bodo pan. You see the same motifs. They have floral motifs, seashell motifs, geometric motifs, which are, you know, for all the world, almost exactly the same as Guebolu. Oh, wow. I believe that that was the, the origin uh, of Guebolu, the Guebolu pan. Okay. Um, and, and these were also made in brass and they were used in Holland, in, exact, in the Netherlands, in exactly the same way. Charcoal underneath, charcoal on top. Right. Simple pancake type batter baked in these pans. But the name of Guebolu, I believe is from the Portuguese uh, bolo, which means cake. Portuguese culture have a lot of egg-based sponge cakes. And, you know, if you look at a typical Quebolu Baolu recipe, and, and looking at antique cookbook texts, you know, the, the basic Quebolu recipe has not changed at all within the past, you know, 100 years. I've been uh, a book from the 1800s mm-hmm. and the Quebolu recipe is, is completely recognizable. And another word for Portuguese-type sponge cake, which is also made with eggs and sugar and wheat flour, is pau de lo. And if you say that quickly and softly, paulo, 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 it almost sounds like baulu. So I believe that's where the word baulu comes from. Um, so you have Dutch and Portuguese influences putatively combining in this way, which has come to be very iconically Pranakan and Malay. You know, and, and, and instantly you, you see this connection that has made the world a little bit smaller and a little bit more cosy. You know, isn't that wonderful? To me, that's wonderful. And then I went to I went to Bangkok and I and I saw this kueh seller making the Thai versions of kueh bolu, which is exactly the same kind of pan, exactly the same kind of charcoal cooking method, but they call it kanom kudichin, and it looks exactly like kueh bolu. Uh, they they but they do put dried fruit in there, like raisins and dried persimmon. Uh, but I saw that in Bangkok and I was like, oh, I know this. And it felt so nice to, to, to know that connection. To yeah, see that connection, no, it must have know? felt so, yeah. And this coming together of cultures, this connectedness that Gui brings is a theme that we'll come back to again and again. Because beyond just large cultures, Gui brings individuals and families and communities together as well. And that's where we come to the second part of the episode. Act 2. How Gui Connects. And as promised, here's a poetic quote from Christopher. In his book, The Way of Gui, he had this elegant line which summed this up nicely. It reads, The virtues of Gui lies not in leaps of logic, but in the cheer of company. This is one aspect that I really love about Gui, which is that it really does take a village to make and also because kueis are associated with particular festivals and occasions, you know, you want to make them well, you want to make them special. Uh, and so really the whole community traditionally would come together uh, to make 
large quantities uh, of kueh, which, which would then be shared around. And it's this, this sort of bonding aspect of kueh making that the, I find really attractive. You know, it's not just one person in their kitchen putting out this, but, but you do need um, accumulated experience and handiwork of, of uh, everyone. Mm. And um, that also links in with, with the other thing I love, which is that, you know, it is so interconnected that kueh's are made so widely across our region and you know there can be so many similarities as well as so many distinctive differences between different expressions of a kue as you move around the region um and yet you know underneath it all they are, they, they, they may all be connected by this this network of history i just find that really fascinating mm. do you um, have any memories from your childhood that that you remember feeling this sense of strong community spirit or like family spirit i mean absolutely one of one of my my touchstone memories is helping my grandma make kueh my maternal grandma was cantonese but married into a pranakan family and she learned all the dishes and so i would help her make pineapple tarts and kueh banke for uh chinese new year and i remember as a small kid you know sitting at the kitchen table and helping to slowly pinch things and, and, and pinch designs into the kueh and more often than not, you know, making a mess and, and, and uh, stealing bites of things. <laughs> but that, that, that was a very uh, formative part of my childhood. You know, you, you, you learn from your elders, you, you, you learn the customs. Um, and I think if you grow up with these flavors, really, they, they, they are inescapably a part of you. Now, I don't come from a family of kueh makers. So to supplement that, I actually went to learn how to make kueh from a kueh master based in Kuala Lumpur. Her name is Debbie Teo and she is a chef and instructor and she's very much like Christopher in her love and adoration of kueh. You scare your feeling first. Feeling has to go into the... Uh. So, okay, so 55, this one, uh, four. So I went to Debbie's house one morning to learn and help out with some of her kueh orders and I was immediately put to work. Her kitchen was bustling, with a mother and a kitchen helper all squeezed into this tiny home kitchen. There are dozens of pots and woks and koi molds of various sizes hung up on the walls and under the sink and dangling above our heads. It looked chaotic at first, especially so because Debbie had to prep for a large event the next day. There was spice paste blending in her food processor, carrots and jicama being chopped up, the steamer was on full blast and the kitchen was truly alive. Debbie had everything under control and she even had the patience to teach me how to make one of her favourite kueh called ang ku or kueh ku. Ang means red in uh, Chinese. Ku is kueh ku. It's actually a tortoise-shaped cake. It's made out of glutinous rice, uh, coconut milk, sugar, salt and uh, sweet potato. Angkus are one of the most common kueh around. You'll find them in almost every kueh shop in Malaysia and Singapore. There's two versions of it, the straight dough method, where you mix everything up together. Or another way, it's, we call it with a starter dough uh, called ibu, um, where you have to cook the starter dough before adding into the original dough. So as Debbie said, there are two ways of making them. The easy, quick way, or the traditional route that yields a superior end product but it's a bit more laborious. And of course, we went with the latter. Still the dough. Can. So this one is 4, 55. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can. What is the point of the Ibo though? 
The point of the ibu is one, to keep it tender, longer. Number two, it gives you a slight bite to your kueh. If you notice, your angku kueh uses platinous uh, rice. Platinous mm -hmm. flour only. This one has got some rice flour inside, so it gives you a slight bite. Because, mm. you know, sometimes it's just like, like, like very soft and gooey. It's mm. supposed to have some bite in it. Right. The original angku. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is done. So once it's hot, what we do is the sweet potato. So we have already steamed the sweet potato. I'm gonna scale it. So orange red, right? Mm. So the intensity of your orange red is up to you because mm. the potatoes is already orange. Oh yeah. Some people don't like to put color, but then if you don't put color, it's not nice at all. Mm. Okay. So we made the dough and then fit them into these really intricate molds with patterns on them. That's where the ku of angku comes in. Because oftentimes these molds are shaped like a tortoise shell. And why tortoises, you might ask? That's because they symbolize longevity in Chinese culture. And there's a whole lot of symbolism around life and birth and death to it. The angku kuis, I would say, is one of the uh, most used uh, dessert uh, during the olden days. You see, it sh it has a different shape. It can uh, shape come in the shape of a peach. That means there's a birth of a baby girl in the family. It comes in the shape of a tortoise. There's a birth of a baby boy. But if uh, it um, comes in a black form, that means black colour, we call it the kweku itam. That means there's a wake in the family. That means there's a death. So one type of kwe depicts different uh, stages of life. So there's birth, there's death, even there's birthdays. Say for an 80th birthday, the shape of the angku will be changed into like a long cylindrical shape of coins. So that is served during an 80th birthday or beyond. How is it presented? Is it something that people just cook and then eat? Or is there a ceremony there? Okay, good question. So during those days, olden days, there's no WhatsApp, no internet. So how do you know that that family has just given birth to a baby, boy or girl? The family would send uh, like gifts of food over to your household and you will get like uh, some uh, glutinous rice, yellow glutinous rice with some chicken curry and an angku. So the shape of the angku would depict whether the baby is a boy or a girl. So at the same time, if they were to send over a black kweku to your home, uh, then you know that's a week from the family. Knowing all this just lends so much more meaning to what I was learning to make that day. But back to the kitchen. So we filled these glutinous rice dough with a mung bean paste that Debbie already had prepared the day before. Otherwise, she said I would have had to camp out in her kitchen overnight making it. So we took these mung bean filled dough balls, pressed them into the tortoise molds. Then it came time for steaming. The steaming time is the most important time because if you go high heat, the thing kembang, that means when it expands, right? All bota. Mm. <laughs> all become bald. <laughs> After all the hard work, no pattern. No yeah. So it's 10 minutes, so every two or three minutes, open. So it's really important to get the steam just right. Too high or too low, and the intricate tortoise pattern on the kueh itself will meld into each other and disappear. So after 10 minutes of steaming, we open the lid of the steamer and had a peek inside. So this is 10 minutes. So this is done. Okay. So you see, it doesn't, 
your your mo the thing is all the invention yeah. in intact. Yeah. Ah, uh, so this is very important. So just give me another one minute or so that I will know. Mm. See, cantik what? Mm. Very cantik. Very good. And after that, Debbie gave me some angku to take home and I had them for afternoon tea. And I must say, they were probably the best angkus of my life. And I'm not sure if that's because I had a hand in making it or it was from Debbie's precise steaming technique. But I think a part of it also comes from the act of making it together with Debbie. This sense of community and coming togetherness that adds to the depth of kue. Or maybe that's just me romanticizing kue. Okay, but one thing that might have crossed your mind listening to all that. You might think that these ankus, these kue, seem tricky to make. There's the starter dough, the steaming time, and you have to have the right ratio of filling to wrapping. And it is tricky. Because even though Debbie grew up making and eating kue, getting the recipe right took her many, many tries. Oh boy, long, many times. I would say many, many times. Many, many times. And during those days, I asked my kimpo for the recipe of how to make angku. She said, oh, very senang. Very senang means very easy. Uh, just mix the glutinous rice with some coconut milk. And then once it becomes a dough, wrap it and then uh, knock it into the mold. Uh, it's easier said than done. It's not that straight. <laughs> so hearing that, it might just reaffirm in you that Kue are these laborious things to make at home. And to be honest with you, I too thought this for a very long time. And that's why I haven't made many kue at all in my lifetime. But let's go back to Christopher. Because when I brought this up to him, he was quick to debunk this misconception. I think if you, you, if you don't grow up seeing kue being made, uh, you know, if you've never really made it yourself, it can be easy to look at them and think, gosh, that must be so difficult to make. You know, the molded patterns and the fillings and everything. Mm. And the, the most elaborate, complex kueis are made for very special festivals, you know, especially at Chinese New Year or Hari Raya. But there are many everyday kueis which are very quick to, mm. to, to whip up. For instance, kue kodok, or also known as kachodok or jemput jemput. Okay, with deep fried banana balls or banana pancakes, people call them. It's literally, you just mash bananas with sugar, flour. Some people put egg or coconut milk in there. And you just mash them all together and then you just drop them into hot oil with a spoon and deep fry them in like two minutes. Mm. You know, within half an hour, you can have a whole plate of these on the table. That's And that's really easy. Yeah. You know, uh, and even things like like kue semprit, um, which are the Malay and Indonesian butter cookies, which are originally Dutch. That's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. Um, and that's just a butter cookie dough. If you can make any other kind of cookie, you can make this cookie. And you, it's just that you pipe it through a piping bag. It, it, it's similar to the Viennese, piped Viennese butter cookies, right? You just, you just pipe it through a nozzle into a flower shape and bake them and you're done. Mm. So very straightforward. But even Christopher admits that there are kue that do take a lot more effort to make. And because of that, some of them have fallen out of fashion. Take the example of sasagun, which I have never heard of prior to talking with Christopher. This is one of the kueis which, which maybe people don't have the time for, and that is sasagun. Do you, do you know this kue? Nope. <laughs> okay, it, it, it's, not, it's not strictly speaking a kue, but it's eaten in, in the same way as a kue is eaten. Um, and it is originally a batak kue. From, from, from Indonesia, but uh, it uh, has been adopted by Eurasians and the Pranakans 
and also uh, the Malays uh, as a kue. Um, the other names are Sagun Sagun, Sisagun, Sasagung. So again, it's one of those things that there's multiple spellings. Oh. And for that, you have to wash uh, rice, ordinary long grain rice. You have to dry it. You have to fry the dry rice until it turns golden brown. Then you have to pound it to a, a powder. Then you have to fry coconut freshly grated coconut until it's golden brown as well and then you pound that to powder and then you mix that all together with the rice and also some egg and a bit, little bit of uh, limestone paste to make the mixture a bit more alkaline and to help it colour and crisp up mm. and then you just slowly fry that until it becomes this very crispy crunchy powdery kind of mix mm. and then once it cools you add sugar and then you put it in glass bottles you, you always keep it in a glass bottle that was a very uh, strong tradition um, oh. And then you, you to serve it, you you fill it with paper cones, and, uh, and then you you knock it back into your mouth from the paper cone. And that is a very very kind of tea time snack. Eurasians also make it for Christmas. Uh, Pranagans we make it for New Year and, and and other times as well. And 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 I think a lot of the younger generation would not know what 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 this is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You still can you no still idea. can find it in Indonesia, and some of the kue makers you know, of my age or older will remember small sundry shops selling these alongside other snacks. They would sell them in paper straws. So it was being made and sold commercially, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Um, but yeah, you only really find that in, in private homes these days. Mm. Why, why do you think that has kind of gone away though? This particular one, I think maybe just because the length of the preparation. Mm. And also, you know, it, it's, it's, it has a wonderful coconut and egg and rice fragrance um, but it's very dry and you always have to have it with a drink otherwise you will end up coughing and <laughs> honestly co coughing I think is half the fun of eating this way you're putting your mouth and you cough and then you have a drink um, so maybe it's not as it's not as relatable to the younger generation who you know prefer things with icing on them or, or uh, much, and, and much prefer sweeter, not to cough things, you know <laughs> yeah and really don't want to cough so much you know because uh might ruin their, their, their makeup or something. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, and, and I knew right from the word go that I have to put this in the book because I'm not seeing this anymore. I, I, I hope people can start making this again. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And one thing I would say that, that you know, queers that fall out of fashion because they um, take time to prepare. I don't like to use the word laborious because it implies that the labor is not worth it. But with a lot of queers, I think the labor is absolutely worth it. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you get something in the end that is so wildly delicious. I think every second you spend on it is totally worth the effort. And that really is Christopher's mission. To push for better, tastier kue and a better appreciation for kue all across the world, starting from our home countries of Singapore and Malaysia. And so this brings us to the third and final act. Act 3. The Future of Kue. And you guessed it, we have a quote from Christopher as well. In his book, there's this brilliant phrase. It reads, I dream of a renaissance, a renaissance for Kwe. Is that something that you are you are constantly trying to trying to push for? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um and you know, when that, first, when that term first came to me, I thought it was so apt because, you know, you look at Renaissance painting and these old masters like Rembrandt and, and all the, the Dutch and Italian painters, 
who did such exquisite work and a lot of their techniques like brushwork and, and all this, the ways they achieved the effects they did, they are little known now. You know, we know very little about how they achieve these things. And I can see some of our quay techniques going the same way if we're not careful. Mm. You know, to take one example, in the old days, before you could buy rice flour, okay, you had to make it yourself. You couldn't go to the shop and buy a bag of rice flour. You had to get the rice. You had to wash the rice. You had to soak the rice. You had then had to grind the rice into a slurry. You then had to drain the rice slurry to get rid of excess water. And then you get a thick rice paste. And then that would become the basis of the kueis. And for some applications, there were even a few, uh, some more processing steps on top of that. Um, and that whole process of getting from dry rice to rice paste could take you know, 24 hours, 36 hours. Mm. So you had to plan in advance. But because you took that time and because the rice spent so much time soaking and, and, and being ground and, and being pressed, the quality of the starches and the protein and the rice changes on, 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 a, on a molecular level because of the time taken. And then because of that, you end up with quays which are really smooth and really fragrant and really soft. And if you buy a bag of dry rice flour from the shop and you make a kueh within two hours, I guarantee you, you will not get the same results. Okay, Christopher isn't advocating for us all to get flour mills at home and mill our own rice and wheat, but he does hope that kueh gets the attention it deserves. And one of the ways he's been doing that is by innovating and updating kueh, which to some might sound like a betrayal to this heritage food. But Christopher thinks of it differently. Okay, so whenever we talk about innovation, some people kind of wince a little bit when we talk about innovation as it could apply to, to heritage food. And obviously, there's a whole spectrum of opinions out there. Some people think you should not change heritage recipes. They must always remain the same forever and ever. Some people are, are very gung-ho and, and um, all in favor of, of introducing, you know, make foie gras pao or something like that. <laughs> and... The viewpoint I take is that if a culture is a living culture, if it's a dynamic culture, it will always change. You know, a living culture is one that can respond to other cultures and adapt and adopt influences and transform them and produce new things and evolve. So any kind of living culture you know, whether it's food or art or architecture or, or, or painting, if it's living and if it's dynamic, it will always change, it will always evolve. And if not for dynamic change and evolution and, and migration and cultural crossovers, we wouldn't have many of the, the signature dishes of the cuisines that, that us in Southeast Asia grew up with. So I am all for change and evolution and innovation as long as it's applied in a respectful and an intelligent and a comprehensible way. What I mean by respectful and comprehensible is that, to me, if you want to, to come dream up a, a, a new creative way of making something, when you taste that new creation, you, you should at least be able to see the bone structure of the original kueh. Some kind of connection must be visible mm. where you can say, ah, okay, this is a riff on that. You know, you have segued from this to that. So, so you, the connections must be legible in order for the eater to, to understand that this is where this quay comes from. Oh, I recognize this flavor. I recognize this texture. 
it, it is so wildly, wildly different that looking at it, you wouldn't even know what its ancestor was. Then I feel, you know, firstly, that new creation is much less likely to be understood by the people who eat it and less likely to become part of your dynamic culture. Mm. You know, and, and, and then to use that example, say you wanted to make a deconstructed kweku, okay, with maybe the skin on one side of the plate and then the filling on one side of the plate, <laughs> and then some new, you know, some, some, some espuma or some sauce. But like a with mung another bean flavor. espuma. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a mung bean espuma <laughs> with, um, you know, a, a, some uh, glutinous rice canale or something. You know, and then you have a red color speckling of sauce across the plate for the ang element. <laughs> you, you can do that. You know, I fully respect your right to do that as a creative. But most Asian cuisines are about melding and integration. You look at, you know, grinding and, and pounding and frying a rumpa, a spice paste. That is based on the art of bringing lots of disparate flavors together and melding them into one. So that, that integration is a key part of many Asian cuisines. So by applying the concept of deconstructionism to that, what are you saying exactly? Are you trying to rock the boat? Or, or rather, are you trying not so much to rock the boat as to completely overturn the boat? Mm. You know, does, does it have meaning to deconstruct something which has evolved over many years to be integrated? Mm. You know, some people will say yes, some people will say no. But these are the kinds of questions you have to think about if you want to respectfully innovate on something. And Christopher has an interesting example in his book of what he thinks is a respectful, thoughtful, and comprehensible rendition of a modern kue. Let me give you an example from the book. Okay, There's a Malay kue called kole kole. And that is, uh, you take mung beans, you dry roast them, and then you grind them to a powder. And then you cook them with coconut milk and palm sugar into like a, a thick, fudgy kind of paste. It looks a little bit like fudge. And then you pour it into mold, and then it sets, and you cut it into squares. And then you top it with crumbs made by boiling coconut milk down until it separates and becomes coconut oil and then coconut solids. And then you strain off those solids. So they have a, a kind of a, a soft... Um, slightly soft, slightly crumbly texture and you put them on top of the, the kole kole. Mm. So you have these tastes of caramelized coconut and coconut oil and palm sugar and roasted mung beans all together. And then I was like, I, I wanted to, to do something different with that because I, I dearly love this kue. Um, but there, you really only see this one version of it. And I thought, what could I do? How could I change this up in a way that would still respect the, the, the bone structure of this particular kue? So I thought, okay, what if I substitute cashew nuts for coconut? So I use a cashew nut milk instead of coconut milk. Mm. And I thought, okay, mung beans are a kind of bean. Cacao beans are another kind of bean. Mm. So what I, th I thought, what if I could combine mung beans and cacao beans and added a chocolate layer of flavor? Because actually when you dry roast mung beans, they actually take on a chocolatey taste mm. themselves. This, this slightly musky, earthy quality which when you combine them with palm sugar, it, it, it really reminds me of chocolate. So I thought, okay. So, so I made this new riff on Kole Kole with cashew and palm sugar. I kept the palm sugar in there, but I used, uh, I added uh, cocoa powder to the mung bean flour. And Ooh. instead of putting the coconut crumbs on top, I just put pounded roasted cashew nuts on top. Ooh. So it kind of looks ostensibly the same, but I set it in a loaf tin and turned it out so it looks like a Western terrine. 
like a chocolate terrine. Right. So if you looked at it, you thought, oh, you might think, oh, what is that? You know? But as soon as you put it in your mouth, you understand that it's it's still kole kole. Mm. It's just a variation on kole kole. So to me, you know, I consider that a successful experiment. Mm. I had kept the spirit of the original kueh, but I introduced flavor dimensions, which are new. And yet at the same time, in your mouth, it makes sense. That sounds so, so good. And this just proves the point, right? With more mixing and colorful clashes of cultures in the world, more ingredients available at our very fingertips, there are so many wild ways to combine and fusionize food. And as trite as fusion food can be, when you do it right, it has the ability to build connections across communities, countries, and even continents, just like the original kueh. And I think in today's world, we need more reasons than ever to remember that we are all connected. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, any two people in the world have much more in common than they have not in common. Yeah, and so far, I guess we've been just saying it from our perspective, right? For us to see all this European traditional pastries, like whether it's like the Kui, Baolu, Ancestors, or like Pao de Lo, it's like, yeah, we are seeing it from our perspective, looking at their stuff and feeling a connection, but it works both ways as well, right? They can look at our kueh and our bahulus and be like, oh. Yeah. And I can give you an so example similar. of that. Oh, cool. Actually, Go ahead. I, was giving, I was giving a talk at the National Museum in Singapore about this exact topic, about how trade routes around the world and the age of exploration changed our local cuisines forever, right? So I was talking about kueh blanda, otherwise known as love letters or kueh kapit or kueh sepit mm-hmm. or kueh semprong in, in Indonesia. And these are wafers made of coconut milk and wheat flour and sometimes rice flour as well and eggs and sugar and they are baked again over charcoal in in like a kind of a a scissor shaped clamp iron so the the, a layer of the batter is clamped between two flat plates and then baked over charcoal okay and the name tells us where it's from kwe blanda blanda means dutch Mm. and these are originally dutch wafers you know of course, in, in the Netherlands, they would have been made with wheat flour and, and dairy milk rather than coconut milk. But when they came to our part of the world, we started using coconut milk. And in the Netherlands, they are either eaten flat for most of the year. So after they're baked, they're thin and crispy and they're eaten flat or they're folded over. But specifically for New Year, they are rolled up into cigar shapes. Mm. And of course, in Parankan culture, we specifically make these cigar-shaped Kueblanda for New Year, for Chinese New Year. So it's a shared New Year tradition. So I was talking about this when I was giving a talk and then I saw these two young people in the audience who were smiling at me. I was like, oh. Uh, and, and they came over and, and we started chatting after the talk was over and they were Dutch. And, and, and um, one of them showed me a picture on his phone of his mom making the same wafers on an electric waffle maker at home in the oh. Netherlands. You know, and that was how oh, my heart swelled. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was so nice to see. And, and that's just one of the more overt examples of, of, of a, a culinary connection there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are many more which could be teased out and dug, dug out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but that, that to me was, you know, really heartwarming. And to think that it's a shared New Year tradition, right? That they will make the cigar shapes at New Year and then... Yeah, and then uh, a few thousand Brandtans miles away. Make it for Chinese New Year. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Huh just listening to all these stories that you have and all these unexpected connections between all these different food cultures and cuisines, Mm. it just 
Ah, it really warms my heart. <laughs> yeah, good. Ah. I'm glad. Isn't that just beautiful? And since we've just heard so much inspirational stuff from Christopher, I think we should just let him end it with some eloquent advice. I would just like to encourage everyone, not just with quays, but with all heritage food, you know, ex- explore your own background and explore your friends' backgrounds and, and share food and make more food yourself at home by hand. I, I cannot tell you how much joy will eventually bring you down the road. In, invest five minutes today and maybe 10 minutes tomorrow. And honestly, you will be blessed beyond compare, you know? The more I learn, the more I realize how much there is left to learn. And honestly, food, food research is the gift that gives on giving. There's always more to find out. There are always more connections to be made. And really, to me as well, that is the biggest reason why I find learning, writing, and talking about food so, so rewarding. And it was just really surreal and heartwarming to learn from Christopher about all these unexpected connections that bridges the cuisines and cultures of the world. And I hope your heart was warm too, and you felt a little more grounded and connected with the world. I know it's been a slightly longer episode than usual, but I hope you enjoyed it and keep in mind the three things we learned today. Number one, kue is the fabric of life in Southeast Asia. Number two, even beyond Southeast Asia, the virtue of kue lies in the cheer of company, connecting individuals, families, communities, and cultures all across the world. And number three, there might just be a coinescence on the horizon. To end, I'll leave you with one last bit of poetic prose, paraphrased from Christopher's book, which resonates especially strongly, considering the present state of our world. He wrote, The way of Gui is a way to lovingly strum bonds with family and friends, a way to find coherence and meaning in a fractured, fractious world a way to bless others, a way to hallow times past, enjoy the present, and sow seeds for the future. So won't you join me on this way? Thank you so much for listening to Take A Bow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a food friend or two who you know loves Asian food or even someone who doesn't. You never know, listening to this just might turn them around. You can find more episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. And leave us a review too while you're at it. This week's review read comes from Tao Fan 7 from the US who said, I love listening to Jun talk about food. He delves into the intersection of food and culture and isn't afraid to let topics wander away and follow their own path. As an expat foodie living in Malaysia, his podcast is essential listening as I settle into my new home. Thank you so much for that review, Taofan. And I'm so excited for you to taste all the glorious, glorious Malaysian food around. Take a Bow is hosted and produced by me, Lo Yi Jun. Thank you Christopher Tan and Debbie Teo who both contributed tremendously for this episode. Their knowledge and enthusiasm about Gui is truly infectious. 
And special thanks also goes to Meglin Wong, who designed our album cover art. Our next episode will be out in a fortnight, and it will very likely be the very last episode for season one. So until then, this is Jun, bowing out. Bowing out.